Coming up on Streamageddon, fall is in the air, but we're not talking about pumpkin spice, no. We're talking Oktoberfest with an all-German fall show swap. That means you're gonna need to turn the subtitles on for this one, because ich bin ein Streamageddon. Welcome back to Streamageddon. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, joined, as always, by comrade Diane Nora. How you doing, Frau Nora? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I, I think we made a huge miscalculation recording in the morning because we don't have large signs of beer at our side. I know. I'm just drinking a light beer. It's so disappointing. <laughs> but we are celebrating Oktoberfest. Nonetheless, fall is here. And normally fall is a time of year when there are so many new TV shows to talk about. But for some reason, this year is different. I can't, I can't seem to think. It's early in the morning. I can't remember. Why is this year different? But you know, it's a good opportunity to revisit some of our favorite shows, such as the German-produced series Deutschland 83 and Babylon Berlin. Diane brought one to the table. I brought one to the table. We made each other do a classic show swap. And you can join us to find out why we love these shows so much a little later in the episode. Are you ready to raise a glass to German television, Diane? Yeah. Oh, that's the answer I was looking for. But first, as always, we have some news to talk about. And we'll begin by bringing Diane up to speed with the big news that broke in the middle of our editing process last week, the end of the Disney charter cable dispute. Uh, I, I want to bring this back up because since there have been a, a series of interesting uh, kind of analyses, and one of them, the headline, uh, is The Cable Bundle of the Future is Officially Here from Alex Kranz at The Verge. We'll have a link in the show notes so you can hear why this is the future of the cable bundle. Uh, as a refresher, why are we talking about this? Because Disney agreed to let Charter, uh, which owns Spectrum, as uh, they're more commonly known by many of their customers, uh, Spectrum customers will get to get Disney Plus, the ad-supported tier, included in many popular Spectrum cable packages. And coming in the undefined near future, those customers will also get the ESPN direct-to-consumer streaming service included in their cable subscription. I think that was a big win for Charter. It was, and frankly, one I did not expect. I mean, I can't hide it. I said it on the podcast that I did not expect it to work. I think we've, we're seeing Disney in a weakened position here. Yeah, I, I mean, I I also got this wrong, as I admitted when I edited the last episode. I didn't think uh, Disney would budge on some of these points. Uh, and we did both agree Disney seems to be in a bit of a weak position right now. On the flip side, I do think there was a bit of a win for Disney here in that they get to continue growing the subscriber count on their streaming services. Uh, they are not making as much money per subscriber because the whole deal is that Charter gets the, uh, a special wholesale rate on those Disney Plus subscriptions. So Charter is not paying retail. And, uh, that, you know, obviously that's a trade-off. But the net result is, in theory, every Spectrum customer, whether they care about The Mandalorian or not, certainly whether they have Marvel fatigue or not, they, they technically can become Disney Plus subscribers gratis now. 
On the flip side, I should point out that was the deal when Peacock launched for Comcast Xfinity customers, and that did not instantly juice the Comcast Xfinity uh, uh, transition to Peacock subscribers, let's say. It certainly helped that it was available, but that doesn't get people over the hump of actually setting up the app, logging in, watching some of the content. Agreed, though. I do think Disney Plus is a slightly easier sell, particularly for families content wise than Peacock is sort of a was a new commodity. And it's still a little hard to put your finger on Peacock. <laughs> what, what is <laughs> Peacock? <laughs> I am one of those people who's going to be losing my free Peacock soon from cable and have to decide how I how to proceed. So, ooh. Yeah. Um, oh, if you had free Disney Plus, you're a Spectrum subscriber, so I feel like I can yeah. pepper you with these questions. If you had free Disney Plus through Spectrum and they took it away as uh, people are losing their Peacock, for example, would you currently, with the current lineup on Disney Plus, be compelled to pay out of pocket for Disney Plus? I would as soon as Loki's back, which is soon. That's true. Uh, and it's coming back a day earlier than originally <laughs> promised. What a thrill. October 5th for Loki. I can't wait. It's right around the corner. Uh, yeah. So at this point, I think I would. I, I'd, I'd pay for Disney+. Plus. All right. That's a fair deal. Fair deal. Uh, but as you said, Disney does come out uh, a little weaker in some regards here. Uh, Comcast, I'm sorry, uh, Charter. Uh, Charter got permission, essentially, to axe a bunch of Disney-affiliated channels, including Disney Junior, Freeform, FXX. Uh, they just don't have to offer that anymore. Is this the end of Freeform? Like, what will happen to these channels? I mean... I, you're asking the right question, and and so is Disney, apparently, because as we have talked about before, Bob Iger is shopping around some of their, uh, let's say, legacy assets, and, and we wondered, how serious is Bob Iger about this? Does he really think he can just chop some of the networks off of the conglomerate and, and you know, keep on trucking on? And the answer is yes. Yes, he does think that because he is talking actively to Nexstar, the owners of the CW, about selling ABC, which, to be clear, is mostly about selling the local stations. It's hard to wrap your brain around sometimes if you're not a actual TV viewer anymore, if you're a streaming-first viewer. But... Uh, the big legacy of a network like ABC is that they own all of these local affiliate stations. And Disney, I think, wants nothing to do with that business anymore. And if the rumors of Disney trying to, let's say, um, lean itself down to be an attractive acquisition target for another company are true or even have a kernel of truth to them, not going to get into that whole bag of worms today. But if any of that is true, let's just be clear, no major tech or streaming media company wants to own, you know, WLSN Memphis 7. Like, they don't want those local stations, where Nexstar is a company that literally went from owning local radio stations to owning local CW stations and is in the whole local station business. But as we've reported here, Nexstar basically gutted the CW. Correct. So, so what that means for the future of ABC is still, of course, uncertain. We don't know that this deal will go through. Someone else could buy ABC or ABC could end up staying part of Disney. But uh, that's I mean, that's a huge part of network television. That's that's a little bit scary. 
Yeah, it's ominous, to say the least, uh, especially if you work, for example, for ABC News. Uh, I read that that was a workplace rife with uh, speculation, rumors, and drama as these CW reports came out. And for good reason, I think, because the CW, not a news juggernaut. And Nexstar, known, if known at all for news, is known for conservative talk radio. Not an optimistic uh, vibe if you work for, say, ABC Nightly News. Or if you watch ABC Nightly News, or if you live in a republic. (laughs) 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 Vibes. The vibes. But you know, uh, that's not the only vibes on network TV as we talk about, uh, is this the future of cable? Is this the future of networks? Uh, Over on the Paramount-affiliated channels, Paramount, of course, the new name for CBS Viacom, so we're really talking about the CBS channels, Uh, CBS itself decided, well, if we don't have any new dramas to show you this fall, what if we we just recycled our old streaming dramas and put them on different networks than where you saw them before? Uh, So take... Yellowstone, a show that is near and dear to our hearts, if only because we reviewed it in our first episode ever. Uh, Yellowstone is airing Sundays after 60 Minutes on CBS. I just love this lineup. 60 Minutes on Sunday, right into a like four-year-old episode of Yellowstone that has only ever aired on the Paramount Network on cable and streamed on Peacock, because as we have covered many times, uh, CBS at the time made a terrible deal where they sold the streaming rights for Yellowstone to Peacock. So they cannot show the classic Yellowstone on Paramount+, Plus, but they do have the network rights, so they can show it on any of their television networks they so choose. And why not put it on the Big Daddy, CBS, where it got 6.6 million viewers in its first outing, which is pretty good for network TV in the year 2023. It's great. I mean, that show has some more uh, adult content on it, but in a lot of ways, it's a great fit for network. I'm kind of surprised they haven't done this before. Yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised it took them this long. Uh, they've experimented with other Paramount Plus shows going to network. They tried some Star Trek Discovery at one point. But uh, this seemed like an obvious choice, especially because they don't own the streaming rights to it. So it, it's also sort of a way to, to kneecap Peacock's advantage a little bit by saying, hey, if you've heard about Yellowstone and you don't want to subscribe to Peacock, you don't have to. Oh, Peacock. Oh. And, you know, Peacock uh, never got any of the Yellowstone spinoffs because Paramount did quickly realize their huge mistake there. Uh, and so the other big Paramount hit of the summer happens to be Cable's number one rated show of the year, reruns of 1883, which originally premiered in 2022 on uh, Paramount Plus, of course. That's the Harrison Ford-led prequel to Yellowstone. And 1883 is now airing on the Paramount Cable Channel, which is, of course, where the original Yellowstone began its life. And on the Paramount Cable Channel, guess what? Reruns of 1883 are a hit. Honestly, again, this isn't surprising. 1883 also has uh, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill, right? So you're hitting multiple demographics. You really are. And actually, real-time correction, it's even older than I thought. Uh, uh, 1883 premiered in 2021. I just think it is delightful watching these networks realize, 
rather than make more and more and more new content when we are struggling to get people to watch the existing deluge of content we've burned all this money on, what if we just started recycling some of our content over and over again? And this is how confusing the Yellowstone Cinematic Universe is. 1883 is the Tim McGraw-Faith Hill show, like you said. It is not the Harrison Ford Heron, Helen Mirren show, which I think is 1923, and that is a 2022-2023 show. And I bet we'll see that on CBS or Paramount Cable as the strike drags on. 1923, okay. But yeah, that should be a bigger hit. It's going to find its way. It is. It is. Uh, you know, they just need some, I, I think they need to space out the time. 1923 premiered in December 2022, um, or rather, actually, I think in uh, January just of 2023. So it's more recent. And I do think part of this calculation here is you need to wait for it to lose its, let's say, premiere window on whatever service you're pushing. In the case of, you know, 1883 and 1923, those are Paramount Plus originals, and you do want to give them some time to hopefully pull some subscribers to Paramount Plus. You wouldn't want to dump them all on TV at once. So just for example, right now, I think if people are watching Yellowstone or 1883 on television for the first time, uh, Paramount is hoping they go, hey, I like this entire genre of Taylor Sheridan cowboy epics. Are there more? And and Paramount will be thrilled to tell you, yes, exclusively streaming on Paramount Plus. Helen Mirren, Harrison Ford. The Duttons are colonizing network television. But I do want to, I, I want to just highlight how confusing that is for the two of us who are literally looking at a bunch of browser tabs that we organize to try to explain this clearly. And it is yeah. not easy, in part maybe because they chose to name some of the shows Numbers, which I'm I'm not totally sure was a great idea once you started introducing multiple prequels that are just years. Confusing. Uh, but also just if you're a regular TV viewer and you stumble on one of these, how much patience will you have to go down the rabbit hole of, is this new? When is it from? Where is it from? How do I see more? Agreed. And do I have to go to Peacock? Do I need to buy Paramount Plus? Which one do I already own? Oh, I have Netflix. Can't I just watch it on that? The answer to all of those questions is, yeah, maybe, yeah, no. The last one's a no, I think, probably. But the first two, uh, that's that's the state. That's the state. There is no magic universal search on your uh, Xfinity remote or your charter remote. They'll try. They've got a button, but it's not really going to answer your questions still. The, the, the industry is too at odds to agree on any way to give you easy answers to what is this and where. Even Taylor Sheridan can't help. Truly. And maybe he doesn't care or want to because the, the more just Yellowstone series they greenlight and continue to churn through and re-air on other networks, the more money he makes. The confusion sure. serves him. If there's one winner of 2023, it might be Taylor Sheridan. <sighs> hey, but you know, we can hope for more winners. Winners like... Max subscribers, there's a pivot for you because elsewhere in this topic I am calling, is this the future of cable? We learned last week that Max, is, uh, of course, the former HBO Max of the Warner Brothers Discovery Company, they're going to offer a new sports add-on. 
that has a terrible name. Diane, can you refresh me on this terrible branding? Leecher Report or BR Sports? Brr Sports. Because apparently they own the Bleacher Report or they have a branding deal with the Bleacher Report. News to me. But now you will be accosted by Burr Sports in your Mac's interface as a free uh, bonus through February of 2024, at which point it will become a $10 a month upsell on your existing Mac's package. And they are launching it, uh, I guess, timely enough as uh, the MLB is heading into playoffs and then the NBA season is kicking off and they will in theory, be turning the screws in February, March as the NBA season heads into finals. So it's a smart move. And I, Warner does traditionally have some good contracts with the NBA in particular, because a lot of TNT, TBS, those networks essentially just serve to air NBA games and then movie reruns. But if this is only going to be $10 a month once it's paid, can they expect to make anywhere near what they were making from like... TBS and TNT showing those games? You know, I think that, it, well, it's it's not an either or. It's a yes and, right? right. They're still going to be airing those games on TNT and TBS, and they're still going to be making ad revenue. But as we all know, that ad revenue is declining. The cable viewership is declining. And so I, I think all of these companies, Disney with ESPN, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery with uh, their, their sports cable constellation, they're all reaching the inflection point of the risk of losing advertiser money is now not as bad as the risk of missing the moment to convert people to streaming sports subscribers. So we had that moment last year of the correction, the Netflix correction of everyone deciding that the, the answer was no longer just get all the subscribers to your streamer, but you have to make revenue. And it feels in some way like we're pivoting back to grow your streamers but now we're pivoting we're pivoting to grow plus revenue it, it, in a way maybe this is smarter business all along to say you have a, a library of material and you have multiple avenues of distribution why are you siloing certain titles to only one of your avenues of distribution that just doesn't make sense uh from an efficiency standpoint you're you're spending twice as much if you're making one show for your streaming and one show for your linear network when you could spend once on one show for both. That makes sense. In a, in a lot of ways it does. It's, it's funny in that uh, for fiction content, what we're talking about with like Paramount and Yellowstone in 1883, it's just the, the reverse in some ways of the original streaming Netflix model, which was the shows air on TV for three, seven seasons, however many. It's New Girl. It's a hit. And then Fox sells the streaming rights to Netflix and makes more money on the same thing that they already filmed. And now we're sort of going in reverse, where Paramount can say, we spent all this money making 1883, and it's already aired on Paramount Plus and already kind of exhausted its potential uh, audience for season one, at least, on Paramount Plus. Why don't we recycle it and air it on Paramount Cable? Because then maybe we'll pick up some new viewers who will subscribe to Paramount Plus for season two. And we can kind of repeat that cycle as a way to, you know, rinse, wash, repeat. Yeah. I mean, if the soaps are dying, why not replace those with a, a Yellowstone-like soap? We're just putting them at night now. 
Yeah, which is in some ways a classic genre of the nighttime soap. Just now, you can you can rewatch it uh, on multiple platforms. If you can figure it out. And they'll all claim it's new. Yeah. Yeah, what is new now is really the question. Does new mean new or does it just mean new to you if you've never heard of it before? And as we've talked about before, sports is sort of the secret engine of television transformation. Sports is such a financial machine that all of this comes back together to me with this Max uh, story and as well the Disney ESPN charter deal to say we're at this moment where now not just are we saying, hey, we shot this uh, television series, this drama or this comedy, should we recycle it somewhere? We're finally saying our crown jewels, essentially, our sports rights we should recycle them somewhere. Not just could we, should we? We've accelerated suddenly to we will, we can, we must. This is the future. Is this the future of cable? I keep seeing the meme of the anime man holding the butterfly. Is this the future of cable? I, I think it could be. I think it could be too. And I think it. they are trying to strike a very challenging balancing act. I really stress, I think it could be. I'm not sure I think it will be. Uh, but but what I understand, or the way I would frame it, if I was explaining it to my investors, uh, I'll put my Bob Iger hat on for a second. It, we don't want to scare away our cable partners, but we're also acknowledging that cable is shrinking. And we want to give consumers who are confused by the transition to streaming, it is overwhelming, annoying, and for sports in particular, deeply fractured. Where you you can, there are weeks where if you are just a fan of the New York Yankees, they'll be playing five games that week and they will air on five different streaming services. And it is not clear or obvious which one, which game would be on or why. And so I think, uh, a, a lot of these, especially large uh, conglomerates like Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery, have realized there are some consumers who are really resistant to figuring out that streaming sports paradigm. And, and also streaming entertainment in general, but the sports paradigm is the most challenging for streaming. And so in the case of uh, Warner Brothers, they're saying, okay, if you still want to watch the NBA playoffs on TNT and TBS... They will be there, and you just have to keep paying for your cable package. But if you don't have a cable package, and you love watching the NBA playoffs, or your team makes it to the finals this year, okay, are you a Mac subscriber for HBO already? It's just $10 more, and you have access to NBA games that you want to watch. That's not a high price if you're already a Mac subscriber. If you're not a Mac subscriber, they're basically saying you need to go all in on us. It'll be like $26 a month for that whatever stretch of months you want that sports access. And that's still not an insane price. Something like NFL Sunday ticket costs way more. But it does suddenly make the math make a little more sense to me where Warner Brothers Discovery is saying if you love sports that much and you're not already in our Max ecosystem... You need to pay up and enter the Max ecosystem. We are not just going to sell you TNT Sports by itself. Right. I mean, that does make sense. I do think until we've found one place that has the NFL or like besides people paying $400 a month for Sunday ticket, because just most people can't do that. Uh, 
we're going to see, number one, these big streamers keep fighting over these rights packages and also uh, just costs for consumers continue to escalate. Yeah, my question on the sports side is what Disney will finally do with this over-the-top ESPN service. Because the first shoe to drop was them agreeing to give it to cable subscribers through the Spectrum Charter deal. That's a really big deal to say, if you are subscribed to cable just because you watch sports, okay, stay subscribed to cable, and now you'll also be able to stream those sports. That's a good argument for the cable companies to make, for sure. I wonder... Disney is going to make their own argument to streaming first customers on buying ESPN by itself over the top. And I wonder, will they really let you buy it by itself? Or will they say, it's an add-on to Disney Plus? It's an add-on to the Disney Plus Hulu Plus Bundle Plus ESPN Plus. You have to go all in on Disney to get ESPN over the top. I, I wonder how aggressive they'll go in bundling it for people who do not get it through their cable package. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. And and I wonder how it will compare to the kind of shifting situation if you're an HBO subscriber and you get access to Max through your cable package. Because it's no longer just a black and white. You get the same Max people get if they buy it alone. You're more or less paying the same price as the people who buy Max alone, but you're not getting the same product anymore. If you want 4K or some of the kind of premium tier features, you now have to cancel your HBO package with your cable company and sign up for direct max if you want those specific things and to be honest they haven't really made it super clear how the sports add-on will work with that some of this may be a play to uh, bring more of the the people subscribing through their cable package in-house without really pissing off the cable partners it's such a delicate balance but we're watching it happen with all of these major companies in real time it's often been said, but I also think that at the beginning of these streamers, it was a cheaper alternative to cable. But at this point, with all these add-ons and all of this bundling and, you know, the NBA over here and uh, soccer over here, for people, it's going to end up being as expensive, if not more expensive than their cable package that they dropped in the first place. Yeah. Yes, I think that's correct. And I think the uh, streaming companies and the cable companies see a surprising, I would say surprising opportunity to actually work together instead of at odds with each other, because they're beginning to realize that that at least for a uh, not a majority, probably not even a large plurality, but for a a, a very immovable chunk of of viewers, the bundle is a better deal still, or is simply easier to understand still. And so you want to have one foot in both worlds. Yeah, yeah. But but that cable package will get smaller as they begin to peel away the networks nobody watches anymore. Cable get in, we're all moving back. <laughs> huh? So just to recap for sports fans, the Bleacher Report Sports Add-on, or B slash R Sports, will be available beginning October 5th, just in time for the MLB playoffs, which start on October 7th. Very exciting, and it will be free until uh, sometime in February, is what they said. Uh, at which point, again, 10 bucks a month. So let's see how the beginning of Sports Mageddon and Cable Mageddon combine in the overall <clears throat> stream Mageddon. Tell your friends. I like how you tied that all together. 
<laughs> Thank you. And you know what else we're going to tie together right now? Two shows that are both German and both worth raising a stein to. Yes, it's time for our Oktoberfest show swap. Uh, you know, we've done a show swap once before. We swapped two very different shows in that case, The Lincoln Lawyer and Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Just, oh, what a vibe those two have together. But this time, we picked a theme, and that theme happens to be Shows und Sprechen, I think, in Deutsch. That's my German for you. Munich. We didn't watch Munich. We watched Babylon Berlin, which you can stream on Netflix, and we watched Deutschland 83, which was originally a Sundance TV co-production, but now you can watch on Hulu in the U.S. Uh, Diane, can we start with Babylon Berlin? You brought this to me. I would love to get your pitch on Babylon Berlin. Uh, yeah, so this has been a show that is slightly different than my previous show swap. I hadn't seen it, but it's been on my list for like seven years. I didn't know uh, you hadn't seen it. Because it's actually from 2018. No, no, I hadn't seen it, but um, it's been like my show that I'm going to watch next forever. And uh, and I did like it. I, I, I agree with my pick. I think I picked well. Uh, I actually think we both did. But um, the, the thing for me about this show is just style. Uh, mm. It's got this like neo-noir vibe um, that I think... Uh, you know, maybe we had a little bit of that on um, HBO's Perry Mason. But other than that, you don't see it that often on TV. And I find it just really refreshing. It feels like um, like 70s cinema to me. Um, some of the dialogue for the show I found to be a little over the top. And I couldn't tell if that was because I was reading subtitles and in translation or if because that's just the style but it but it really worked for me um to clarify we're reviewing the first two episodes of each yeah i was gonna say light spoilers for the first two episodes of both of these shows babylon berlin has four seasons on netflix now so we are not spoiling much in the grand scheme of babylon berlin uh to give you a listener a nugget uh the plot According to Wikipedia, the series is set in Berlin during the latter years of the Weimar Republic, beginning in 1929, and it follows, you know, his name, I see it in the, the subtitles, and I'll never actually know what I'm pronouncing here, Girian Roth, uh, a police inspector on assignment from Cologne, who is on a secret mission to dismantle an extortion ring, and Charlotte Ritter, police clerk by day, prostitute by night, who aspires to become a police inspector. I like, I actually, that's such a good description of them because of the show, because the two of them are the centerpieces. And I didn't quite mm. realize that it was going to be this two, it's not a two-hander yet. They don't necessarily work together, but they've met, they've encountered each other now. And it's very clear that they're somehow going to be a little star-crossed uh, as they both work at the police department. Yeah. Um, and I really like Charlotte. Um, I do too. She's great. I uh, was immediately drawn into her character. I like that, you know, there's obviously some uh, high stakes uh, conflict there between uh, working as a prostitute and working as a police clerk. Um, but she felt really uh, human and intriguing and not like they were using her to try to make some point. 
Yeah, no, it feels more like she's a, a victim of her circumstances in some way, and and the prostitution angle is mirrored a bit in uh, Inspector Roth's job on the Vice Squad, because he's currently assigned to the Vice Squad. So we see in the premiere, they, they uh, basically shut down a pornography, uh, or, or like a porn set. There, there seems to yeah. be some more shady things going on there with little boys and things. It, it looks, you know, like it's more seedy than just porn. But it is, it is, the begins with they're shooting a, like an old-fashioned porno on, on a film, <laughs> on a film strip. And they, they bust that up. And in fact, Rath kind of deals with people by trading uh, illicit photos and things to get his morphine fix, for example. Because one of the other kind of very moody, dark tones of this show is the like extreme drug addiction amongst a lot of people in this era, especially veterans of the First World War and people living through some very rough times in uh, Germany. Right. It's uh, sort of between the two wars. So it's, I think the first season is 1929. So yeah, you have that era of like decadence, uh, poverty, addiction, and a thriving nightlife. Yeah, a thriving nightlife indeed. I agree that this is a very moody, vibes-based show. Uh, there's just, there's a musical number in the second episode that I, I both was like, I don't, I don't know if this is forwarding the plot at all, but the vibe is killer. Yeah, yeah. Does, it feels very not American to me in a way that I find refreshing. Um, you know, sometimes when you're watching like a, a BBC hit or something, it feels like it could have just aired on US TV. Maybe the um, maybe the humor is slightly different, but generally the content feels like it could be anything you'd see on CBS, like with ghosts, right? It transfers yeah. very well. Whereas uh, with this, it just, it feels like something completely different from what we normally get. And even from what we normally get on Netflix. Yeah, it is. You know, it's one of those sneaky situations where in the US, Canada, uh, the other markets where Netflix streams it, they brand it as a Netflix original series. But you watch it and it doesn't have the vibe of your typical Netflix original series. And, and that's because it's not. It is a Sky production from Germany that Netflix just gets to brand uh, in the countries where it's the exclusive streamer for it. And it, it shows. It feels different. It feels grittier and more experimental in some ways than a, a typical U.S. Uh, streaming show would uh, and and also kind of raunchier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is not this is not family programming. No, no, it is not. I also think uh, so. I've tried to watch this uh, pilot once before quite a while ago. And what I realized watching it this time is that the first time I tried to watch this show, Netflix defaulted me to the English dub. And again, um. when I started playing it, it defaulted me to the English dub. And I, one, do not recommend that. But two, didn't take into account how the English dubbing sucks so much of the ambient sound design out of the, the show. And this is not just Babylon Berlin. This is true of a lot of dubs. They, you know, they cut out more than just the vocal audio. They cut out ambient audio. They cut out sound design that really sets the mood of the place or of the crowd. And so as soon as I flipped the audio back to the original German, suddenly I'm not just hearing the actual voices of these actors, which 
more expressive than the dubbed voices by a long shot on this show. Just like the quality of the dub, not great in my opinion. Uh, but I also suddenly heard the, the, the hubbub of the police behind them, like arresting the pornographers, and the noises of the set, and the chaos and the ambiance of you know, 1929 Berlin, which is so much of this show, that I, I, it was night and day. It did not occur to me that that was the problem the first time I tried to watch this show years ago now, because it has been floating around my list uh, since it premiered as well. Yeah, I think that I probably heard about it about five years ago. And part of the reason that it I think it has languished on my list is that I have become one of those lazy viewers who a lot of the content that I watch is um, second screen material in that I'm, I'm looking at my phone or I've got my laptop open and I'm doing some work. And you can't really do that for this show, um, even if the even if you spoke German, I think that this would be a show that would require more of your um, attention to properly appreciate it. And so it kind of surprises me that it's become this sleeper hit on streaming. Um, but it also doesn't because, like I said, there's there's not really any uh, comparison. Yeah, I think both those things are true. It, I'm surprised that it is in its fourth season and and renewed for a fifth that it is got the longevity it has. Some might say that's because it's not a Netflix show, actually. And if it was a Netflix right. show, they might have run out of patience for it already. Unclear. But Netflix does like this show. They promote it when when new episodes come out. It's not just a back catalog item, uh, I, I think, in Netflix's opinion. So we, I, I agree. It's an interesting success story. And one that I am so glad succeeded because I did nope out of the pilot years ago when I first tried to watch it. And I am so glad you put it back on my list because I loved it. But it it is a show that requires your full attention. It's an active viewing experience. It is. And you won't hear me say this too often, but I don't think it's a binge. It's It's dark and it's intense. And I think for me, this might be one or two hours at a time. And that may change as the season picks up, yeah. But um, I, I don't know if I'm going to sit through, you know, an eight-hour Netflix binge to get my Babylon Berlin fix. No, but I, I like kind of the amount of work laid out ahead of me here. The first uh, two seasons uh, is a total of 16 episodes, which were uh, released originally together in Germany, but then split up as season one and two on Netflix. And then there's a third and fourth season that are, uh, I believe, each 12 episodes. So it's not a super short season uh, overall. You've got, you know, almost, what is that, 40-some episodes to watch. That's great, but it's not an overwhelming task if you're not into the binge angle here, because I, I, I agree, this is a slow drip. Yeah, it feels kind of more like something you'd see on an HBO, not just because of the content, but because it's slightly more stylized, or even like back when Showtime used to release stuff like this, um, than something that you might see um, on on like cable. Yeah, it has a, a, a premium cable or premium streamer vibe. Like in a way, I wouldn't be surprised if this showed up on Amazon Prime Video because that's a place uh -huh. that likes to spend a lot of money on something that might be a period piece or a very specific vision. Uh, and this has that element of it looks expensive and it, it, it really um, embraces a very specific vibe and kind of, a, for lack of a better word, directorial vision of what it should look, feel, and sound like. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, don't 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 do the dub. No, hard no on the dub. And speaking of things that you will not be able to listen to a dub because we we both forbid it and it is not available. Let's talk about a, a different kind of German show and pivot to Deutschland eighty three. This was my pick, and there is no English dub available on Hulu, so suck it, you gotta read. Uh, Deutschland 83 is a much breezier watch, I think. This is one you could binge because it is a spy show. Love a good spy show. Uh, Deutschland 83 originally released in 2015. It is a German series uh, that was, uh, like I said earlier, a co-production with Sundance TV, which is an AMC uh, division. Uh, And so I originally saw it somehow on like the Sundance TV Now app. However, that existed. Uh, Since then, Sundance TV is not really much of a thing anymore. And so instead, Hulu has got all three seasons of Deutschland 83, conveniently titled Deutschland 83, Deutschland 86, and Deutschland 89. Because spoiler alert, they are set in 1983, 1986, and 1989. Or maybe 1883, 1886, and 1889. This week, who knows? Uh, interesting comparison between these shows that I learned when I was reading about them. Uh, Deutschland 83 is not a hit in Germany. No, it is not, which I find fascinating. Baffling. Oh, you know, I, I, they both deal with kind of dark, troublesome times in German history, but one of them is much more recent than the other. 1929, right. very much history now. 1980s, the 1980s are recent history, and uh, Deutschland 83 set primarily in the border uh, back and forth between East Germany and West Germany is a show where the heroes are the East German intelligence agents trying to spy on the West. And I do think that is probably one of the reasons it's not as popular uh, in Germany. But it reminds me a lot of one of my all-time favorite shows, The Americans, which is a very similar vibe if you're a U.S. audience, with with the difference being we weren't the, the... frontier of the Cold War. We were the comfy home front of the Cold War. So the idea of rooting for the Soviet enemies that we know eventually lost, it's entertaining. It's interesting. Whereas I think if you're a German viewer, especially one with memories of the end of the Cold War, of the Berlin Wall, of living through like perestroika, I'm not sure you want to root for uh, my beloved Martin Rauch, the 24-year-old border guard who gets turned into a spy. True. I I think that that's a good point, though. I think that, uh, you know, my recollections of the Americans grow more complicated with the news every day. Uh, But it just makes me appreciate the show more. Another thing is that there is a breeziness to Deutschland 83 that the Americans doesn't have. It um, clips along like it, it. there's a ton of pie of plot in these first two episodes. And because it has almost a um, lighthearted at times, even though the content is not lighthearted uh, tone, it it's really interesting that way. Like it really draws me in, but I could also see that potentially being um, striking a nerve for viewers in a different way. Yeah, I think that's actually 
a good point. There's a coming of age vibe to this story because mm-hmm. it is about a young man who is basically a, a college kid in some ways. He's 24. He is a border guard between East and West Germany. And we meet him in a scene where he and another border guard are basically just shaking down these West German students for their books, uh, for like Shakespeare and other books that are cheaper to buy in the East than they are in the West. And they shake them down and they threaten them. But at the end, they have a laugh about it. And Martin winds up gifting one of those books to his mother at a birthday party. You know, so you get this vibe of he's just a kid. Yeah, he's a, a, you know, part of a totalitarian military state. But he's just a kid in a totalitarian military state. And he's got a girlfriend and a mom. And he goes to a nice party. And you think, ah, he's relatable. And you kind of, he's a little like, yeah, immature, goofy. But you want to like him. And so when he swiftly gets recruited to be this double agent because he fits the profile of impersonating a, a like an aide in the West German military, uh, he, he he stumbles a lot. And they do mm. some really you know, kind of charming 80s style getting stuff done music montages to show us the, the the actual nuts and bolts of his training without dragging down the tone. No, and they really do kind of feel like an 80s movie. There's so many good needle drops in this show. Yeah, it's so fun. Another, yeah, well, thank goodness there's no doubt. Yeah, truly. The the no-dub is your friend here. Though, interestingly, they switch out some of the music internationally. So, for example, the theme song to the show is a German pop hit called Major Tom. uh, And I love the theme song to this show. Uh, In the actual German version, the theme song is New Order. A Western oh. band, I know, which that, that New Order song is used at the end of the premiere episode. Weirdly, in the premiere episode, there is this stunning scene right after uh, Martin, our hero, gets abducted by his aunt, who is a German spy, and he knows this essentially about her. She abducts him to the West and uh, sets him up with uh, the agent who's going to train him, essentially. And they do such a good job of tweaking the color palette when he goes from the east to the west that suddenly he's in this bright red t-shirt and he flees this uh kind of manner that they've got him holed up in in bonn in germany and he runs through the streets and there's more colorful clothes more colorful images on the tvs in the storefronts and he runs into a grocery store and in that grocery store great music swell scene uh, for the West, I believe it's Sweet Dreams. Uh, mm. And in the East, it's Major Tom. That was a popular song you would hear in the grocery store in the 1980s. And so for the German audience, they kept that for a sense of verisimilitude. For the Western audience, they gave us a pop song from 1983 that we would recognize. But either way, the visual of his red shirt popping against this like gorgeous green produce department in this brightly lit grocery store with this pop music playing is such a like exciting, fun, but also kind of tense and anxious moment because he's so clearly overwhelmed by all of it. And it, it all kind of hinges on some sweet needle drops. It's really well crafted to keep up that that energy. I love that. And I have to think, I think part of what really works for me about it, too, is that it, it is so quotidian. You know, it's just the grocery store. Everyone goes there. It's not like, oh, he's in a bunker somewhere, you know, sending communiques. It's uh, 
really still grounded in his life and this character who, like you said, we're, we're taken with right away. Uh, you, you know, he is a little derpy, but <laughs> you get to grow along with him. I mean, I imagine he does a lot in this first episode. Yeah, the first episode is such an efficient setup where he both establishes his spy skills and completes his first mission. And each episode, for the most part, has a good mission of the week structure where we're following a season-long arc, but there is a beginning, middle, and end to some mission in an individual episode, which gives you a nice sense of completion, makes it a little easier to rewatch a random episode or maybe take a week off and come back. And what was going on? Uh, that kind of caught me up. And now I'm into this week. He's got to infiltrate the hotel room of a NATO official to get the secret documents out of his hotel safe. And it's all part of the big story. But there's a specific task that we get to follow him on. And that, I think, also lends to his derpiness a bit. Because we're we're not just watching him struggle to achieve some grand you know, spy game, but we're seeing him try to literally execute very specific things in the hope that this is the last one and then I can get back to my life in in East Germany because he just wants to go back to his girlfriend and his mother and he thinks, if I can nail this, my mother will get a kidney transplant because that's one of the ways they kind of dangle this over him and add some stakes so that he doesn't just flee. Uh, his mother needs a kidney transplant. In the East, you need uh, you need some high people in powerful places, so to speak, to get you on that kidney transplant list. And so his aunt, Lenora, who is the sister to his mother and is a very complicated character, to say the least, is basically extorting him, saying, you complete this mission for me and I will make sure your mother gets that kidney transplant. She was a character who I was like, is this going to be a little too over the top? Like, is she humanized? It, I mean, hard to say in two episodes. Uh, I, But I was intrigued enough that I was not turned off. Like, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep watching. Yeah, the dynamic, not to spoil where the series goes, but the dynamic reminds me a bit of the Stan Beeman uh, you know, Jennings family dynamic in the Americans. In the Americans, the Jennings are the spies living deep cover in the U.S., and their neighbor across the street is Stan Beeman, and, you know, hunky-dory FBI agent in counterintelligence who doesn't know that his neighbors across the street are Soviet spies. And through the series, you're on team Soviet spies. You love the Jennings. The Jennings are the heroes of the show. You also love Stan. And even though Stan is technically the antagonist to our main characters, you don't want to see him you know, fail or die, but you also don't want to see the main characters fail or die. And there is a bit of that with Martin and Lenora where she does some despicable things, but it's also because she's a true believer in the yeah. East German cause. And you also don't want to see anything necessarily terrible happen to her because then what would happen to Martin? What would happen to his mother? You know, it's a complicated uh, situation where she is an antagonist, but is she the bad guy or is the bad guy society, the world, the West? Many options. Many options. Yeah, the, this whole system that has ensnared them in a way so have you seen all three seasons yes yes and you and you still endorse 
I do. I would say season one, Deutschland 83, is the breeziest and most fun of the three. And you could watch it as a mini series and have a great time and then say, I got my fill, I'm good to go. But if you wind up loving the characters in particular, especially Martin and Lenora, the long arc of the series is it's about them. That makes sense. Right. Okay. And it's about yeah. it's about the fall of East Germany. Because 1989, spoiler alert, the Berlin Wall falls. What? I know. I'm sorry. I said I wouldn't spoil anything beyond the first two episodes. But ah! An interesting thing that I just realized. So Edward Berger directed five of the episodes of the first season. And that's the same Edward Berger who directed All Quiet on the Western Front for Netflix, which was nominated for Best Picture. So I think, you know, there's been some realization that, like, uh, this talent uh, has a future in streaming. I I would say very much so. And the direction in uh, every episode in general is very effective. It's fast paced, Mm. but it's also... Uh, got a, a bit of an opinion. It's not nearly as stylized as Babylon Berlin, nor should it be. But there are those, like, no. I loved your description of the grocery store scene as a quotidian moment, because it really was. It's just a guy standing in the produce department. But the way they build up to it, the way they frame it, the way the colors pop in it, especially after we've spent the first half of the episode in a very drab color palette in East Germany, it kicks ass. Mm-hmm. And you can really understand his point of view and how as much as this is something he doesn't want to be doing and he wants to get back to his life, this is exciting and thrilling for him and changing his whole perspective. He's seeing color in a new way, you know, Uh, and, and, and it really puts the audience in that point of view. Yeah, and there are many little moments like that through the first season. Things about food, him trying to order a steak at a fancy hotel restaurant and not knowing which piece of steak, the filet, the sirloin. He goes, cow steak. <laughs> I would I would order the same way, so. <laughs> <laughs> I would too, I would too. But that is my pitch on Deutschland 83. I do think if you love a good spy show, if you were a fan at any point of the Americans, you will love this show. Just a little reading is required. A little bit. So how do you feel, Diane? Do you think we nailed our Oktoberfest show swap? I think we did. I think these are good shows. And I was worried they would be too similar, but they're not. No, what they're I, really not. What I love about this is they're, they're both German historical dramas, and they could not <laughs> be more different, except for the part where they're German. And they're good. And they're good. And they're both good. You could really toggle between them. I think if uh, you find Babylon Berlin a little heavy, have a refreshing episode of Deutschland 83 for dessert. It will delight you. Yeah, I, I that's what I did. <laughs> uh, beautiful. And that's what I'm going to keep doing. I didn't want to go further in Deutschland 83 and risk spoiling something beyond the second episode because there is a whole plot line in season one involving uh, his... Uh, friend essentially at the the western military base he gets paired with another young cadet who turns out to be the son of one of the senior west german officials that that martin is spying on juicy there is a whole Mm. plot line 
about this other character that hasn't even kicked off yet and is super 80s and super interesting, and I didn't want to let that slip. So I stopped my rewatch at episode two, but I tell you, 1000%, I am pouring a nice Oktoberfest Marzen tonight and watching more Deutschland 83. Oh, yeah, that's that sounds like a plan. And listener, if you have some Oktoberfest plans or just maybe some fall TV you're interested in, tell us about it. Podcast at streamageddon.com. Until then, Diane, many fall shows actually coming up. We are going to talk about season two of Loki once it premieres. Got to have some thoughts about the future of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) Got to try. But until then, tell us what we should watch, and we will tell you to keep Keep streaming. Society, the world, the West. Many options.